0: Hello. Today, I would like to share a special essay with y'all, and I hope you have having a good evening, morning, afternoon, whenever you may be listening. <laughs> but today is going to be the Ballad of the Federal Reserve. And I am going to basically be pulling this straight from a blog post that I made, a special essay that includes some artwork I did of Jeff Bezos. And I would encourage y'all to check that out because I had a lot of fun making that and I think it's pretty good. Anyways, uh, today we're gonna be talking about the perfect companion to a Bezos piece, which is Robert Barons and a rigged system that's designed to keep us in wage slavery. Centralized banking via the Federal Reserve has ostensibly become our fourth branch of government, yet due to how it operates, it has become the biggest script in human history. And that is the title of my blog post and what I think will be the title of this podcast episode, The Biggest Grift in Human History. New feudalism has solidified its hold insidiously throughout America and many other nations as their economies and governments are taken hostage by the international banking community. And for the purposes of this, we're going to be referring to them as money changers. And I would like to note that for this episode, I'm... Directly pulling from uh, Money Masters and The Monster at Jekyll Island, which are two fantastic works, uh, especially Money Masters, I would highly suggest those. Since 1913, we've had the modern Federal Reserve System, a quasi-federal institution that's owned by private stockholders for their own profit. The Fed is not required to report its share owners that determine policy, it has seven shares which serve 14 year terms each, and only two of those seven spots are appointed by the president, who doesn't dare go against the wishes of Wall Street. The Fed does not hold reserves, despite the misleading name. The Federal Reserve is run by the financial system for the pure purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits from the use of other people's money. In Rep. Lewis McFadden's words, (laughs) he called it the most corrupt institution the world has ever known. The Fed has never been audited. It operates outside of congressional oversight. It is privately owned, yet it still has total control over the economy and our lives. Many people don't realize, but the Fed determines what our house, car, and other loan payments are going to be, while at the same time determining if the minimum wage is even going to be livable. The Fed is the largest creditor in the United States, and the borrower, in this case, the American people, is always subservient to the lender. Our founding fathers didn't want a centralized bank because they experienced firsthand the vast corruption that came with the territory, meaning the Bank of England and the original issue of taxation without representation. As such, the original currency of our young nation was Colonial Scrip, a project that was championed by Brent Franklin and was what we would call today a constitutional currency or fiat money created and owned by America so that our money would possess no interest with debt-free lending. Seeing their colonies moving towards financial independence with this, Parliament passed the Currency Act of 1764 at the behest of the Centralized Bank of England, forcing colonial officials to pay all taxes in gold or silver and banning fiat currency to force us onto a gold standard. After this act, the colonies saw massive unemployment as they became increasingly indebted to England's bank. And Franklin noted that the inability of colonists to issue their own money permanently in the hands of King George III and international bankers was the prime reason for the revolution. America today is experiencing exactly what early colonists revolted over, unable to keep up with inflation and debt and... (laughs) an economy that is entirely out of our hands. Our founding fathers knew the danger of banks accumulating too much power. Uh, Thomas Jefferson even said that banking institutions are more dangerous to our liberty than armies are. Quote, the issuing power of banks should be taken and restored to the people for whom it properly belongs. Thomas Jefferson. Fractional reserve banking took over in the last year of the revolution due to Hamilton and Robert Morris opening the Bank of North America. Uh, which supposedly was going to ease our new burden after the revolution. However, the Bank of North America was heavily modeled off the Bank of England, and it had a monopoly on printing money and also inflation. And thus it lent out money that it didn't even have while charging interest on that fake money to create debt, which in any circumstance besides a bank doing so would be considered blatant fraud. It wasn't long until the disastrous effects were felt as inflation skyrocketed. William Findley noted that the purpose of the centralized system was to engross all the wealth, power, and influence of the states. Jefferson also added that, quote, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and their corporations which grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent that their fathers conquered. End quote. Even Governor Morris, who was a part of Alexander Hamilton's original team, uh, became disillusioned with the project and quit, saying, quote, The rich will strive to establish their dominion and enslave the rest. They will have the same effect here as elsewhere if we do not, by the power of government, keep them in their proper spheres. End quote. And so about at this same time, I was not able to verify if this is 100 percent factual or not there are sources claiming that yes this is an actual quote there are sources saying no such thing was said i tend to lean to the side of history where this quote was said because when you hear it and you know the person behind it following the rest of this story i think you can kind of put two and two together anyways at the same time that hamilton established the bank of north America. Nathan Rothschild came out and taunted the public, saying that if he could control all of a nation's money, quote, I care not who writes the laws. And this was supposed to be a direct taunt at the new country of the United States in terms of he doesn't care who is in charge. The Bank of England and the money changers are still going to be dictating our economy. The Rothschilds were one of the OG money changers. They financed our railroads, American Steel, American banks. And after J.P. Morgan died, it was found he was a mere lieutenant to Rothschild. J.P. owned only 19% of the J.P. Morgan Bank, which was worth billions of dollars at the time in the early 1900s. It is pretty well known that the Rothschilds were behind the original Bank of the United States, And there are credible reports that they controlled over half of the global monetary supply after Nathan Rothschild manipulated the European markets after the Battle of Waterloo, which is unfortunately a story for another day. All this is to say, though, Hamilton was a tool of international bankers. Our modern Federal Reserve is the same exact system that Nathan Rothschild and Hamilton wanted, except instead of them in charge, it's just just their ancestors within the same familial ties. And we will get to this. Oh, and the Bank of the United States uh, comes into play after Governor Morris and Jefferson essentially kill Hamilton's original Bank of North America. When Jefferson leaves office, Hamilton swoops back in with the Bank of the United States. And so the Bank of the United States was given a monopoly on economic power again, with 80% of its stock held by private investors and 20% owned by the government. Hamilton needed $10 million to establish his new bank, and so he called up the government and asked them to loan him $2 million, while at the same time issuing fractional reserves to begin raising $8 million from the American people. And he did this in the form of bonds, which of course the Bank of the United States charged heavy interest on. So. This is one of the most crucial aspects of the Federal Reserve and any centralized bank that you need to understand. These banks do not spend a dime of their own money, meaning the investors, the bank itself, they do not spend their own money. Instead, they push the risk onto the mass of the population and they create money out of thin air because they have the, quote, authority to and then they will sell us bonds with that created money, exchanging a bond backed by fake money for our hard-earned real dollars. Over the first five years of the Bank of the United States' life, the government borrowed $8.2 million and the inflation rose 72% during the same time. When Jefferson was elected, he called the central bank a viper, wishing it was possible to amend the constitution and take quote from the federal government, their power of borrowing. The Bank of the United States ended up getting struck down as well. Madison's administration ended up sending the bank to hell with a single vote in favor of disbanding the institution. However, after Madison was able to kill the Bank of the United States, he received some pretty dire warnings from European money changers. And only five months after it was voted to kill the Bank of the United States, the War of 1812 began. The largest financier of the British side of the War of 1812, the Rothschilds. And in this case, the Rothschilds lent money to all parties involved, as is common for a central bank, because they want to maximize profit. So they will give out a loan to both sides. That way they cannot lose. After the War of 1812 ended, it only took two years for another new central bank to be proposed with the same exact charter as the Bank of the United States and the Bank of North America. So you can see the forces that are behind these banks and the specific charter that they want in place. The largest block of this new centralized bank's shares about a third of them were sold to foreigners, mainly the Rothschilds. So at this point, it is 1814, we have the third version of our central bank and the Rothschilds and other money changes in Europe own up to a third of it. The reason that we're able to validate this is similarly to the quote from Nathan Rothschild earlier about controlling a country's money and not caring who's in charge. He bragged to his family that he not only controlled the Bank of England, but he now controlled America as well. Then we get to Andrew Jackson's presidency. And when he took office, he promised an absolute war on centralized banking. He fired 2,000 federal employees who had been paid off by banks. Jackson also ended up vetoing the renewal charter for this bank. And at the same time, he said that, quote, More than eight millions of the stock in this bank is held by foreigners. Is there no danger to our liberty and independence in a bank that in its nature has so little bind to our country? While he was a horribly racist man and the literal devil to indigenous people and minority communities in general, I do applaud this particular sentiment from Andrew Jackson, which, funnily enough, he created the model for our modern presidential campaigns when he took his message of quote Jackson no banks on the road (laughs) and he toured the country with this slogan uh, essentially laying down the groundwork for the kind of rallies and travel Mm -hmm. schedule that modern presidents have Nicholas Biddle was the head of our centralized bank that Jackson had just vetoed. He threatened to cause an economic depression by telling Congress he would make money scarce to force Jackson to maintain the bank. When Biddle said this, Congress became very scared because they knew he and the financial lobby had so much power. The Fed could theoretically just recall all debt and refuse to print any new money, freezing our economy and all our assets. So after this happened, the Senate voted to censure Jackson, which is the first time that's ever happened to a president. And an investigative committee was formed to look into the bank's books and see just what Nicholas Biddle had done. At the same time, though, similar to what we're seeing with Steve Bannon, uh, Nicholas Biddle refused his subpoena and he withheld all payments to government employees until Congress basically met his hostage demands. By the end of Jackson's term, he had issued a fiat currency to buy government bonds back, and he had fully released the U.S. from any foreign creditors. This is the first and only time that that has happened in our country's history. Coincidentally, shortly after Jackson did this, an assassin named Richard Lawrence tried to kill him. He was found not guilty by insanity. And then after release, he bragged that powerful Europeans had put him up to this, promising protection from his assassination plot. So now within our story, we move past Jackson's presidency and we move along into the Civil War era. This is probably the most shocking portion of the story to me in terms of it being a revelation over the true extent to which our country operates around savage capitalism. The Civil War was caused not only by our fierce defense of white supremacy and thus slavery, the same centralized banking debate played a crucial role in it. It's questionable if Lincoln originally intended to free slaves or not. In his inaugural address, he said he had no intention to, and after the first shots at Fort Sumter were fired, He stated, quote, if I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And this has been a debate through many historians and many discussions. I personally would like to believe and am of the mind that Lincoln had intentions to kill, to release slaves. However, it has to be noted that his largest concern was preserving the Union and in his mind, especially at the beginning, he believed abolition of slavery would destroy them. Otto von Bismarck was also a very close ally to Lincoln, which may come as a surprise because the Ottoman Empire is an empire, an authoritarian regime. But Otto von Bismarck said, quote, the division of the US into federations of equal force was decided long before the Civil War by the high financial powers of Europe. These bankers were afraid that the U.S., if they remained as one nation, would attain economic and financial independence, which would upset their financial domination over the world, end quote. And this would be further backed up by the fact that after Fort Sumter's initial conflict, just a couple months later, the Bank of England loaned Napoleon's nephew 200,000 francs to invade and take over Mexico while the U.S. was crippled by the war And at the same time, England also moved 11,000 troops into position along the Canadian border. A lot of people don't realize that Lincoln was in this squeeze where it was more than just North versus South. It was the American people versus the financial powers that be. So do you see how the wealthy have had this prerogative to divide us in order to maintain control? For decades, going back to the beginning of our country. As the Civil War went on during the first year, Lincoln enlisted Colonel Dick Taylor to create an economic plan for financing the conflict. Based on the constitutional rights given to the government to print money, Taylor and Lincoln settled on the idea of greenbacks, an interest and debt-free currency that was distributed among Americans by our federal government. Quote, the government should create, issue, and circulate all the currency and credit needed to satisfy the spending power of the government and the buying power of consumers. By the adoption of these principles, the taxpayer will be saved immense sums of interest. And this is the most important part of the quote, money will cease to be master and become the servant of humanity." End quote. Abraham Lincoln, at the beginning of the greenback initiative, said that. At the same time that the greenback currencies began printing, An editorial surfaced in the London Times at the same period elucidating central bankers' feelings about this new American currency. If the new debtless system that Lincoln created to finance the war was allowed to continue, then, quote, that government will furnish its own money without cost. It will pay off debts and be without debt. It will become prosperous without precedent in the history of the world. The brains and wealth of all countries will go to North America. That country must be destroyed or it will destroy every monarchy on the globe, end quote. There could not be a more revealing statement about the true intent of money changers and the financial community. Towards the end of the Civil War, Lincoln passed the National Banking Act out of desperation. The last battles were looming and the greenbacks, as fantastic as they were, simply were not enough to keep up with the rapid amount of expenditures that the civil war incurred. So this national banking act solidified a system of debted bonds that would back Lincoln's bank notes to give them value and boost the amount of money in circulation. Only five days after Lee surrendered, and mind you, this was only a couple months after the national banking act was passed. Only five days after the surrender of General Lee. Abraham Lincoln was murdered. I will do my best to put this part of the story together in a way that doesn't sound conspiratorial because it is conspiratorial, but it is a true conspiracy. So I don't want to sound like the kind of anti-vax, like flat-earther bullshit, because this is a conspiracy that actually has happened. Lincoln and his treasury secretary, Salmon Chase, had realized that the National Banking Act would not be a permanent fixture. They were planning to repeal this after the Civil War, with Chase calling it the greatest financial mistake of his life, noting that any centralized banking had a monopoly on the interest of the country. So, quick fast forward to 70 years after the assassination of Lincoln. This is in 1934. Gerald McGeer be- revealed what he believed to be a plot that was devised by the International Banking Committee, presenting a five-hour speech before the Canadian House of Commons. Remember, 1934, this is also at the height of the Depression, and we will link all of this together in a minute. Gerald McGeer had t- obtained documents from Secret Service agents at the trial of John Milk's booth, which suggested he was a mercenary working for international bankers who feared Lincoln's credit ambitions. Hatching a plot in Montreal to get him out of the picture. McGreer noted that this assassination was planned to destroy a continuation of the greenbacks and force a gold standard. Important because America has a lot of silver. It's harder for banks to control a substance that's 15 times more plentiful than gold, especially since scarcity allows cornering of a market. Plus, at the same time, America had laws stating you could bring personal metals to the treasury to be minted into new silver dollars. Now, money changers couldn't have any of that nonsense where people could literally find and create their own money. So they hatched this plot to ensure we would never see a constitutional currency again. And while John Wilkes Booth was undoubtedly an extremely racist Southern loyalist, he also has been confirmed to have traveled to Montreal before the assassination. And these documents that McGeer presented essentially confirm that Booth was paid a large sum of money by European financiers to carry out the assassination on Lincoln. They recruited him specifically because he had ties to slavery and was a loyalist. So the cover of that being the only cause worked in their favor. Immediately after Lincoln was killed, the Bank of England deployed Ernst Said to bribe politicians in America to shift onto the gold standard again. And less than eight years after Lincoln's death, that currency was once again established. As a result of Said's bribes and thus the shift onto another gold standard, from 1866 to 1886, The United States' money supply was restricted from $1.8 billion down to $400 million, a mere $6.67 per capita and a 760% loss in buying power. We are told that depression and booms are natural in capitalism, but this is truly a consequence of our money supply being manipulated. Money changers have crafted a system of tanking the economy so that people lose their assets and then they can swoop in and buy them for dirt cheap, loan those same properties and assets back out to people desperate for housing in a crashed market. And then when the market recovers, make bank on an inflated rate. And this is exactly what they do because after a crash, money changers then pump the market back up, skyrocketing the values of the assets that they had just acquired for cheap by flooding the market with money. And that is what we're experiencing now is a financial mania of sorts. Said admitted to drafting the Coinage Act of 1873 himself, and this was the act that had shifted us onto the gold standard. And after this huge restriction in the money supply, it became known as the Crime of 1873. In 1876, the United States Silver Commission concluded that monetary control and contraction was fully at the behest of European bankers noting that the Roman Empire had its money supply shrunk from $1.8 billion down to $200 million, and this is what led to the Dark Ages. Quote, When you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled, one way or another, by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate. End quote. And that is by James Garfield. Coincidentally, two weeks after making this statement and after making finance a central portion of his campaign, Garfield was assassinated. Now I want to bring us to when the modern Fed was actually created. So at this point in the story now, we have moved past the Civil War and Lincoln's assassination and we are in the early 1900s, right about the time that the fed was actually formalized in 1913 and beginning in the early 1900s there was a two-part strategy that led up to the ratification of the fed and that two-part strategy was to one propagandize and fearmonger the idea that society would collapse without a centrally controlled money supply and the second part was simultaneously restricting that money so tightly into the hands of a few americans that people would be desperate to get any wages and be forced to compete in this endless cycle of getting a wage to survive this would create a population simultaneously distracted from important personal pursuits or knowledge while enduring constant servitude to the ultra wealthy for a check think about if you are in a rat race to make it to the next paycheck, to make your next meal, you're not going to research into politics or even into the deeper economy because all of your energy and time is focused on meeting your basic needs. So at the same time that money changers have been creating these centralized systems, they've also wanted to create the illusion that any decentralized banking was Unstable and it would create crashes that would allow them to consolidate power. So, for example, JP Morgan was able to successfully tank the market with his friends in 1907, essentially collaborating to restrict loans and hoard their money supplies. And small banks, many of whom had reserves less than 1% due to the fractional reserve that our central bank operates on didn't have the cash reserves to keep up and were simply done. This allowed J.P. Morgan and his associates to make the argument that they should be in control of everything. And unfortunately, the public agreed, specifically a group of professors. Morgan offered to prop the economy up by giving failing banks money, essentially buying them out, and he manufactured $200 million out of thin air. This was unbacked money, And the only value it had was that J.P. Morgan said it was a dollar. But it had the effect of killing every small independent bank. So after he did this, banking power was consolidated into the hands of a select few. And shortly afterwards, a professor at Princeton named Woodrow Wilson said, quote, Trouble could be averted if we appointed a community of six or seven public-spirited men like J.P. to handle the affairs of our country, a.k.a. A fucking plutocracy and this is meant to give you an example of the exact kind of person that woodrow wilson is was thankfully so after this panic in 1907 the national monetary commission was formed and it supposedly was looking into banking industry activity to regulate them however jp morgan and company were all over it and they installed senator nelson aldrich as head of the committee whose district included the richest banking families on the East Coast, and come to find out Aldrich was, in fact, paid by the money changers. Immediately after the NMC, the National Monetary Commission, was set up, Aldrich took a two-year tour of Europe to consult with with central bankers and cost the taxpayers $300,000 while he was doing this. Then after he returned to the U.S., Seven of the wealthiest and most powerful men in in America boarded Aldrich's train car to Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. And in this meeting, it becomes pretty obvious that the reason for Aldrich's two year soiree in Europe was to meet with the central bankers and come up with this plan for how they would implement and solidify a centralized bank in America for good and thus control the debt and most of the assets in our country. At Jekyll Island, specifically, a, a man named Paul Warburg was among the group, and he had a $500,000 per year salary, and his only job was to lobby for another American central bank. Warburg was paid staff of a company owned by Jacob Schiff, the grandson of Nathan Rothschild's most intimate business partner. And here we have the shifts in the Rothschilds to major European financier family. Money buying American policy is nothing new. Decisions like Citizens United were made to blow the lid off of campaign finance law and extend the same kind of tax dodging evasions that individuals can engage in onto corporations. People such as Mitch McConnell champion money as speech, and gladly request the donors talk with their checkbooks. The concept that drives our entire campaign system is who can grab the most profit, who has the most capital to put out constant ads and content. Thus, our system has become about who the best fundraiser is, rather than knowledgeable candidates and a representation of the American people to the fullest. With cinema or mansion being the prime examples of those in our our contemporary Congress. The men at Jekyll Island went by first name basis only so that their servants wouldn't know who was a part of the plot. If it were to be exposed that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatsoever of passage by Congress. And this was said by Frank Vanderlip, the former CEO of Citigroup, who was also at Jekyll Island, obviously. By 1913, only 19% of banks were national, and corporations were even financing their own expansions, with 60% of industry independent from banking. After the crash of 1907, industry had rebounded well and was even prospering. Obviously, this had to be stopped in the minds of the Jekyll Seven. And to cut out competition, they began strategizing to create a massive media campaign that would pull the wool over Americans' eyes and get them to support their own demise, accidental bars. The most important important point brought up at the meeting was that the word bank should not be in the title in order to conceal its monopolistic characteristics and avoid any association with the past failed projects like Hamilton's Bank of America, Bank of the United States, etc., Thus, the skeleton of our Federal Reserve was created in 1910, narcissistically named the Aldrich Plan after the politician who thought he was getting away with robbing America blind. The Fed's operating structure is the exact same as every corrupt central bank we've had before in the sense that bonds, government IOUs, are purchased by the Fed from whoever is offering them. Then two, the Fed pays for said bonds with electronic credits to the seller's bank with no guaranteed value because the Fed creates money out of nothing. Three, banks then use these credits as reserves with the ability to loan out over 10 times the amount of those reserves to new borrowers, all at interest, of course. So a Fed purchase of $1 million can turn into $10 million with nothing backing its value. And they make money off of it because of the interest the poor schmucks are paying for their loans which banks received from the Fed at virtually 0% interest. The effect of this plan from Jekyll Island was to misdirect banking reform efforts, preventing a constitutional debt-free currency from existing, and then delegating the right for bankers to create 90% of our money supply based on fractional reserve. And remember, the reason they wanted to do this is because corporations were funding their own projects, and we were shifting to a more honestly socialized-looking form of economics. This is the reason we have such volatile booms and busts. Money is never stable because of the constant back and forth of inflation that wrecks the average person's ability to keep up in the economy. To fool the public, there has been a board of governors appointed to the Fed. However, all bankers have to do is buy their way onto that board. The president or politicians aren't going to go against the wishes of Wall Street because they know America is a system of modern slavery and they could easily be on the wrong end of it if they resist big money. So in 1910, as part of their promotional strategy, New York banks began financing professors to endorse new centralized banks and Woodrow Wilson was one such. However, they didn't get the votes necessary to pass the Aldrich bill In 1910 because people like representative Charles Lindbergh called their bluff. So the money changers were forced to wait until 1912 to try to pass this. In 1911, the banking industry began financing uh, Woodrow Wilson to be the next president. He was their star pupil and a man named Bernard Baruch from the financial lobby was appointed as the head educator for Woodrow Wilson. And Baruch was directly employed by the Schiff family. In my mind, Wilson has been perhaps the single most damaging president to America, not only reinforcing but ardently supporting white supremacy, going so far as to show a KKK propaganda film at the White House. But he was so ignorantly selfish that he essentially enslaved America for personal status while dragging us into World War I, which we will explain, but... Of course, as you know, wars are financed by money changers and the financial lobby always benefits off of war because they play both sides. So in 1912, bankers finally had their own special candidate. It had been nearly a century after Jackson ended their first attempted centralized bank scheme. In Wilson's election campaign during 1912, the money changers thought it would be extremely ironic to bring William Jennings Bryan onto The ticket because he was such an ardent opponent of centralized banking. And Wilson had constructed his platform in such a way that nobody in his cabinet knew just how far the extent of control within the new centralized bank would be delegated to outside stockholders. And Jennings Bryan actually resigned from the staff after realizing that Wilson had been bought. And he realized Wilson was a pure propaganda effort of the banking industry after the sinking of the Lusitania, a fairly transparently manufactured plot to drag us into World War One. Quote, The Wilson administration, under the tutelage of those sinister Wall Street figures who stood behind Colonel House and Baruch, established here in our free country the worm-eaten monarchial institution of the King's Bank to control us from the top downward and to shackle us from the cradle to the grave, end quote. And that was by Representative Lewis McFadden. As we know, Wilson ended up winning the presidency, and in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act was passed, giving bankers their personal institutions of robbery and a currency backed by gold that they could manipulate to their heart's content. And at the time, the Bank of England owned virtually all of the world's gold supply. The name for the bill that ended up passing the Federal Reserve was the glass owen Bill. It was essentially a carbon copy of the Aldrich Bill on every important matter, which, remember, was a copy of the Centralized Bank of North America and Bank of the United States. So we have had a Federal Reserve modeled off of our most basic, yet knowingly corrupt institutions of central banking. The Federal Reserve is just another iteration of two former banks that failed because the people recognized they didn't have their interest at heart. It was only serving the few upper class who controlled it. Although the, the Aldrich Federal Reserve plan was defeated when it bore the name Aldrich, nevertheless, its essential points were all contained in the plan that was finally adopted. And after this happened, Aldrich said, quote, before the passage of this act, the New York bankers could dominate only the reserves of New York. Now we are able to dominate the bank reserves of the entire country, end quote. And so that gives you a sense of how much control this Federal Reserve structure has to manipulate our entire economy. To solve the problem of interest on unlimited federal debt that bankers had just created with the Federal Reserve, because remember, they are constantly issuing bonds and continuously creating debt. So in order to keep up with this, Wilson instituted the income tax, perhaps the second biggest crime against Americans besides the Fed. (laughs) Corporate income taxes had incidentally been found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court just four years earlier, and the citizen income tax had been struck down in 1895. However, these precedents didn't stop power-hungry sociopaths, and Aldrich hustled the 16th Amendment into Congress so that he and his banking interests could get away with the income tax. This is extremely important. It is up for debate as to if the 16th Amendment is even legal, since not all the required states ratified it and still have not ratified it. Our income tax is nothing but a guarantee that bankers have control over our debt and thus our lives. The entire economic system, our centralized bank, everything within it is private to be, quote, conducted for the sole purpose of obtaining the greatest possible profits from the use of other people's money. They know in advance when to create panics. They also know when to stop panic. Inflation and deflation work equally well for them when they control finance. Representative Charles Lindbergh again. Within a year after the Federal Reserve's passage, the Fed had nearly all monetary control over America. McFadden notes that the Fed has become a super state controlled by international bankers and international industrialists acting together to enslave the world for their pleasure. In America, we have one elected government that operates in the light, and we have an even more powerful one that is unelected, a dark and insidious force controlled by a select few individuals. Even Thomas Edison was against the Federal Reserve, saying that it was, quote, absurd to say that our country can issue bonds, but not currency. Both are promises to pay, but one promise fattens the the issuers, and the other helps the people, end quote. In the 1930s, Wilson himself noted that we had become a government under the duress and weight of a few dominant men, a power so pervasive that we shouldn't speak above our breath when we speak in condemnation of it. On his deathbed, Wilson lamented that he had, quote, unwittingly ruined my government, end quote. News outlets have been thoroughly paid off, claiming depressions can be avoided through the power of the Fed, when in reality they are just manufactured by a few looking to profit. FDR was the first one to recognize this publicly, saying, quote, These international bankers and Rockefeller Standard Oil interests control the majority of our newspapers and the columns of these papers to club into submission or drive out of public office officials who refuse to do the bidding of the powerful corrupt cliques which compose the invisible government. FDR. Debt-based banking is why we go to war. Our bonds drive the military industrial machine that fills the pockets of the top few. Our endless debt generated from conflicts like World War II, which 55% of was footed by American taxpayers, goes straight into the coffers of war financiers, the international banking community. Money changers even began funding revolutionaries as a sort of twisted revenge for the SARS that had denied creating centralized banks in Russia and Asia. Jacob Schiff and others bragged of spending $20 million plus to overthrow the Tsar of Russia, and Chase Bank funded most of the Bolshevik revolution. How's that for a fucking mind twister. The modern-day Morgans, Rockefellers, and Aldriches are all intermarried, as are the Rothschilds, Schiffs, and Warburgs. Even Lenin himself, the revolutionary, realized he was not fully in charge of his new country, seeing that international banks now controlled the flow of money in and out of Russia. Bankers believed they could control socialist leaders by drip-feeding them resources, but they lost control over several, such as Mao, and this is why, in practice, communism ended up becoming an authoritarian, dictatorial cult of personality regime. The influence of the wealthy is not a conspiracy theory. Events like Jekyll Island actually happened to consolidate power. The Aldrich Plan actually was created by Aldrich, a sitting senator, and the banking community to determine how much control and influence they could assert over our economy. Every depression, recession, and boom since 1913 has been directly controlled by the Fed and its invisible hands. Curtis Dahl, the son of, son-in-law of son of FDR, has written about how his father figure was a mere pawn for the banking industry, noting that the Great Depression was due to, quote, the calculated shearing of the public by the world money powers triggered by the planned sudden shortage of call money in the New York money market. At the height of the selling frenzy during the Depression... baruch brought winston churchill into the new york stock exchange and bragged about how much control over he he had over the events on the floor that the great depression was his design and coincidentally it was in retaliation for america hoarding most of britain and europe's gold reserves following world war one which wilson and baruch dragged us into Louis McFadden and other representatives realized this, and they connected the depression to a plot by the Bank of England to reclaim the gold they'd lost during World War I. McFadden also warned the U.S. that our money was being used to build up Nazi Germany, as he noted that, quote, after World War I, Germany fell into the hands of international bankers. Those bankers bought her and now they own her, lock, stock, and barrel. They have purchased her industries, they have mortgages on her soil, they control all production, and all public utilities. End quote. The Federal Reserve pumped $30 billion into Germany during the 30s. A paltry reported sum of the actual figure, which was certainly near the hundreds of billions. So to put this in perspective, our Federal Reserve made profit for European bankers who then turned around and funneled that profit right into Hitler. Despite our economy being tied to the gold standard still, right as the Depression ended, FDR shockingly made an executive order to recall all of America's gold. This executive order was number 6102, and it was an illegal act that outlawed Americans from purchasing further reserves, which he claimed would worsen the Depression through hoarding our gold. Therefore, FDR mandated that all gold be stored inside Fort Knox. A very important note about this executive order, nobody knows who the true author is. FDR himself said he didn't, but it is expected to have been drafted by either Baruch or another embedded banker and passed through the treasury to the president. The most insidious stipulation of FDR's executive order was that the second Fort Knox filled with Americans' treasure Its doors were sealed and the overnight price of gold nearly doubled to $35 an ounce. Remember, FDR had banned Americans from purchasing or selling gold even at these newly inflated prices, but there was one group that conveniently could, international brokers. Since then, it has also come to light that the Rockefellers manipulated the Fed to sell Fort Knox gold at bargain bin prices to their anonymous European sources. Then those sources flipped the gold back at full price. Nelson Rockefeller's secretary leaked this story of the American people being completely robbed and three days later she was killed after falling from a skyscraper under dubious circumstances at best. If you thought this story of the Rockefellers pilfering our gold out of Fort Knox was bad, what followed is the dirtiest, most conniving heist in American history. Following World War II... 70% of the world's gold supply was supposed to remain in Fort Knox, as after the World Wars, America reaped the rewards from its winning efforts and exponentially increased its gold reserves. And we had billions upon billions of dollars in Fort Knox. We know that Rockefeller had been trickling gold to to Europe earlier in the 1930s, but after World War II ended, the Federal Reserve made its move. Over a couple of decades, the Fed quietly repossessed every single ounce of gold that was left remaining from Rockefeller and friends in the vault, As soon as the Fed was done trickling out our gold, President Richard Nixon seemingly out of nowhere passed an act to end the gold standard, cutting off what was supposed to be in Fort Knox forever and beginning the Nixon shock. So with his end of the gold standard, Nixon effectively sealed off Fort Knox forever. And we will never get confirmation as to how much, if any, gold remains. There has famously never been an audit at the military compound, and the government has refused to open the doors since Nixon sealed them for good. By the time we realized what had happened at Fort Knox, it was too late. The Fed and its private investors held all of the remaining funds, billions and billions of dollars taken straight from the pockets of the American people and fed directly to bankers. It is the largest heist on record. Quote, the powers of financial capitalism had a plan nothing less than to create a world system of financial control in private hands able to dominate the political system of each country and the economy of the world as a whole. This system was to be controlled in a feudalistic fashion by the central banks of the world acting in concert. End quote. And that is by Carol Quigley, who was a very important figure in Bill Clinton's administration. Until we start talking about who controls money, it is just a shell game a facade that keeps us trapped in constant debt and inflationary struggle. No matter how balanced the budget is, we will always be indebted to Wall Street and the hidden interests pulling strings since America can't control our own money. The privately owned Fed does, and they don't have to disclose any of their shareholders. Whatever lies we have been told growing up, that the American dream exists, that we live with freedom, we don't. America is a system of new feudalism designed at the hands of a select few and perpetuated for generations by the same families. In book two, I will discuss how we can look at eliminating interest and reforming our banking system. But for now, know that Lincoln's dream of a constitutional currency is feasible. Personal and national debt could be eliminated in two years or less, and it wouldn't require a return to any gold standard, simply constitutionally issued currency for bonds with a mix of some inflationary management. Ironically, I find Milton Friedman's ideas regarding this topic to be fantastic. Further, shifting off of debt-based banking would be the only way to permanently lower or eventually eliminate taxation. And that is probably the most important part that everybody cares about. We can liberate ourselves from this oppressive system, but it will take a genuinely courageous collective moment to do so. Great minds such as Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas believed that the purpose of money is to serve society, facilitate trade, and the exchange of goods to live a virtuous life. Debt and principal interest exist contrary to reason and justice within humanity, and we must retake that power. Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to the story of the Fed. I know it is pretty complex. There's a lot of history and moving parts that go into it. So if there was anything you feel I missed, you need more clarity on, please don't hesitate to reach out, comment, whatever it is. I would love feedback. Thank you as always for listening and I hope you have a great rest of your day.